Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. This is my podcast about working. You dig the music? You do. You have to. You, my friends, are listening to a version of Thelonious Monk's Panonica performed exclusively for this episode by pal of the pod, Eric Pan. Why so? How did you, little Lazar, manage to pull Pan into playing Panonica on piano for your peerless podcast project? Why the abundant alliteration? Hang on, y'all. You'll see. And you'll hear more Eric Pan later. But for now, welcome. We're halfway through season seven. We've been diving deep into the work of some of my favorite artists and exploring some of my own artistic hopes and fears. Yo, if you've been tuning in, you know I've been writing and recording songs based on the tone and the content of each episode this season. And I've performed some of these original songs at a couple Ukraine benefit concerts over the past couple weeks. I'm kind of grappling with some of the big feelings about the whole performance thing. I'm not so sure I want to get into all that right here and now. But I will say that I feel more empowered to play at a concert with a cause than to like just jump up on a random Berlin open mic. And I might add that it's gone pretty well. I mean, not artistically per se, but emotionally, you know, like I'm okay. I'm okay. And I'm feeling really good about this season. I'm learning a ton. I get to share space with some brilliant people. I'm getting some really supportive emails and DMs. And you know, that all gives me a moment of joy and a bit of a reprieve from the drudgery of pandemic teaching. I mean, I love teaching. I do, I do, I do. But the classroom these days, man, it just doesn't feel the way it used to. And every day I fear that the classroom might never be the same again. Listen, I'm not much of a nostalgia guy. But I am nostalgic for the feel of the classroom prior to the pandemic. Yo, it's 10 times worse for the kids than it is for me. Truth. But still, struggle's real, y'all. You know what I am nostalgic for? There was this classic kids who were 10th graders when I started teaching in Berlin in 2007. This was the Kennedy School class of 2010. These kids were the jam. One of them, Yana John, was on the first season of this podcast. Yoga teacher, walking miracle. Anyway, the Ken Kesey of this merry band of pranksters was this kid, Anna Zaklinski-Scharf. Now, these days, Anna's a pediatric resident at a children's hospital in Hanover. She specializes in immunology, oncology, stuff like that. She's also a new mother. She's on maternity leave. She's traveling the world with her kid. She's amazing. But her greatest accomplishment, and I'm sure she would agree with this, is that she is now officially a patron of this here podcast. You want to be more like Anna? I do. 
you should too. So just head over to patreon.com slash for a living and see what you can get for supporting these explorations of working lives. Look, I'll tell you, every couple of years, I'm handed a class of students who just managed to jive. Like the chemistry is there. There's sort of an X factor. The marketplace of ideas buzzes. The engagement is empathic. We laugh a lot. We learn a lot. Anna's class, that class of 2010, dude, they rocked. The class of 2014 did too. And that has something substantial to do with this kid, Eli Weiner, who came in for a year and took the Kennedy School by storm. Dude left a profoundly positive mark and he introduced me to his dad. Joshua Weiner has authored several books of poetry and he is the editor of a book of essays about Tom Gunn. His Berlin Notebook, about the refugee crisis in Germany, was published by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Boys well decorated, he's received Whiting, Guggenheim, and Rome Prize Fellowships, and the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Scholarship, which is what brought him to Berlin in 2012, when they had the honor of teaching his son and the pleasure of drinking beer and swapping tales with Josh. These days, Josh teaches at the University of Maryland, and he lives in D.C. with his wife, the New York Times bestselling author, and super groovy, Sarah Blake. And just this month, my man published his translation of Nellie Sachs's 1959 volume, Flight and Metamorphosis. This translation, which he did in partnership with Linda B. Parshall, is taking the poetry world by storm. Durs Grubein, who's the chair of poetics and artistic aesthetics at the Art Academy of Dusseldorf, writes about Josh's translation, and I'm quoting here. Nellie Zox wrote in a kind of secret language, a metaphorical language of poetry, lines written in the air, as she said, like the smoke from the very chimneys of the Holocaust. That language makes demands on a poet, and Joshua Weiner has satisfied those demands in a rare way. Thanks to the bilingual edition, the reader can follow his attempts line by line. And so this translation works like a double fingerprint, and it really works. Weiner's interest in socks as a cultural symbol that we need to move beyond in order to get to her poetry is the right intuition. And the way he has managed to bring her over in a modern English version is just stunning. Listen, Josh is stunning. You're going to fall for him. He's going to make you all stumble buzzy. It's inevitable. You'll want more Josh, 100% guarantee. And you can have him. You probably just missed his book talks at Politics and Prose in D.C. and at KGB in New York. But our man of the hour is on book tour, baby. He's got gobs of readings and talks coming up. He'll be at the Old Line Spirits in Baltimore on April 22nd. And he's on the road for at least a couple months. 
A lot of his talks are streamed live, so you can catch him wherever he is, and I will link to all his upcoming events in the show notes. But for now, I got him. So join me in conversation with the poet, my pal, Josh Weiner. Joshua Weiner, welcome to For a Living. I have been eagerly anticipating this conversation. It's a pleasure to have you. How do you describe what you do? Hey, Daniel, it's really nice to be with you. Uh, what I do, I'm a poet, so I spend a lot of time writing poems and thinking about writing poems when I'm not writing them. Uh, and I'm also a teacher, I'm a, an English professor, uh, specifically in an MFA program in creative writing at University of Maryland, and even more specifically than that, within the poetry program of that MFA program. And so I'm, I'm teaching poetry too. I'm, I'm leading workshops with poets that are enrolled in the graduate program there, uh, and I'm working with college kids in poetry workshops, and I'm also teaching literature classes all of which are devoted to, to poetry. So I'm writing poems. I'm also writing about poetry in essays, reviews. Uh, so I'm attending to, to that part of the art too. Uh, I've also have been until very recently, the poetry editor at a magazine, Tikkun, uh, which is like a, a Jewish political magazine. and. I've also helped to uh, administrate a residency program for young writers and artists. Uh, it's a program that called the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. That's Provincetown, Massachusetts, Cape Cod. And that's a program that's not affiliated with any university or any other institution uh, and is really devoted to emerging writers and artists. So all these things are connected to writing poetry. It's like a whole culture, and I'm devoted to practicing the whole kind of bandwidth of the culture. I feel like that's what keeps the culture healthy. One is writing poems, one's thinking about the poems that other people are, are writing and have written, and one is contributing something to kind of creating opportunities for other other poets to to write and to to do the same kind of work and to be involved in the, in the same kind of practice with the same level of dedication. So that's what I do. And I very much hope to dive into all of those things in the space that we've created with each other today. But before we do, I have to tell you, I have a certain fetish for Genesis stories. So let me ask you, how did you get on the poet's path? <laughs> it's a long and winding road. <laughs> you know, I was in high school. Uh, my parents were divorced. My dad had relocated uh, to New York. And so I would visit him from time to time. And I started reading The Village Voice. Because at that time, it was uh, a free weekly full of all kinds of countercultural things. And this must have been 1979, maybe 1980. There was an interview in the Village Voice 
with James Baldwin. Yeah. And there was something that he said that just grabbed me by the throat. And I had a ballpoint pen with me because I was probably in a, a cafe somewhere. And I did that thing where like you press your pen into the newspaper and make a square box and you do it over and over again. You kind of cut out the piece with your pen. I did that and I folded it and put it in my wallet and I kept it in my wallet until it fell apart years later. And what Baldwin said was, you got to go the way your blood beats. Yes. You can't live another person's life. If you try, you're not going to live their life. You're not going to live any life at all. And he was thinking, not necessarily about being a writer. I think he was thinking about being gay in America uh, and following uh, one's own natural feelings about who one wanted to love. But it said something to me about, about everything. And when I got to college and started scribbling things that I thought were might be poems and, and then started studying poetry and the writing of poetry kind of more formally, I uh, held on to that quote. And as I saw my good friends and peers head towards different kinds of professional schools, toiling over those applications to law school and med school and public policy programs and whatever, uh, I really felt like, man, I'm really not interested in anything as much as I'm interested in poetry. And I don't really like doing anything as much as I like reading and writing poems. So basically you have one shot, really. Be better to take it and satisfy that need and that ambition and fail than to have reached the age of, that I am now and to not feel like one had tried. So that, that's one answer. The more kind of pedestrian answer is that I took a poetry workshop in college and I had a, a really demanding teacher. She pushed me really hard. And I responded to the discipline of writing poems in that way. And I just kept going. You responded to the discipline of writing poems in that way. What's wrapped up in that sentence? Yeah. Well, I think prior to that work I did with that teacher, uh, that poet, I was just kind of lazing about in reverie and feeling my feelings and writing my, my thoughts and my feelings and uh, in a, a haphazard way. I didn't really have any notion about uh, what poetic language and poetic form might be or could be. I was really taken with the poetry of Dylan Thomas at the time. I didn't really understand any of it. Uh, but something about what he got the language to do really hit me, and I loved it. It was sexy. It was. It, it had juice in it. It felt like you were sticking your hand in a socket. You know, it just was alive. 
I knew I couldn't do that, but I wanted to get close to it. When I started actually reading poems like a poet and thinking about the way that they're put together and all the different kinds of elements that one is working with in the material of the language, you know, diction, syntax, formal kinds of structures, end rhyme and internal rhyme, all kinds of rhetorical figures that make shapes out of language, the spatialization of poetry. As I got involved with, with all of this on a really technical level, I got more and more interested in it and came to a better and better understanding of the discipline of writing poems. That, you know, as much as it was about capturing the moment through a sense of inspiration and, and, a, and, a, and a kind of attention to that psychic energy, there was just a lot of know-how that goes into writing poetry. There's just a lot of stuff to know about technique. And that the, the attention to technique kind of objectifies what you're doing, kind of cools it down for you. And you start thinking about how all these different parts work together and interrelate. And that started to feel like, like a kind of work that one could really devote oneself to, that there's a lot to learn. And it's going to take a lot of time. And it would require devoting oneself to that kind of foundational labor. I love that response. And of course, as someone who hosts a podcast about working, it ending with the word labor brings a little smile to my face. Josh, I see you in your office. You are literally surrounded by books. And I know that some of those books and some of those works must be yours. I don't know that we should go too much farther in our conversation without hearing you read your work. Since we're talking about the Genesis story, do you have an early work at hand that you might be willing to share with me? Yeah, sure. I picked this poem called Casting Back. It's a poem that I wrote for my dad and it has that dedication line for my father. It was really like the first real poem I wrote after uh, a couple of years of working really hard at writing poetry. It was the it was the, the first kind of occasion in which I felt like I was doing something. And and I think about my experience discovering the poem in a way um, in the context of, of something that the great Irish poet Seamus Heaney uh, writes. He talks about young poets when they're getting started and they're doing something real, uh, but it's not quite there yet. He likens it to the feeling that one has dropping a bucket down a well and not really hitting water but pulling the empty bucket up and feeling the weight and thinking that you have something and really all you have is the weight of the bucket. And then there's a breakthrough and you hit the surface of the water and the bucket fills with water 
And then you start pulling that up and you feel the difference that you broke the surface. Now you have the substance and it's in the bucket. And that's the feeling I had when I got this poem. Working on it was a moment when I feel like I entered the vocation of poetry a little bit more deeply. I wanted to write a poem for my dad uh, on his 50th birthday or for his 50th birthday. And I felt like, hey, uh, you want to be a poet. Here is an occasion for a poem. You're a poet. So get to work and write the poem for your dad for his 50th birthday. And I sat down and I just started kind of free associating in my notebook about all the things that I I thought about in connection with my dad. And um, and he's a very, very knowledgeable, very, very expert fisherman. And that's something that we did a lot together when I was a, a kid. Actually, I stopped fishing with my dad once I really started reading books. So I, I wanted to spend that time reading books on a Saturday afternoon more than I wanted to be out there fishing with my dad. Uh, but there was something about fishing that really captured my dad. And there was something about the physical work of fly casting and, and spin casting that caught my imagination figuratively. There was something I felt instinctively kind of metaphorical in the work and the play of fishing. And of course, you know, uh, what is working with various kinds of lines when one is fishing. And this had something to do with it too. Uh, and so I started working on this poem and I wanted it to be a kind of celebratory poem for my dad turning 50. But as I got into it, I started getting into the kind of darker materials of that relationship. And I realized that what I was writing was not really a celebratory poem on the occasion of his birthday. It was really a poem about my relationship to my dad, which was, you know, has light and dark in it. And I, I realized I was like at a kind of crossroads. And I had to make a choice. I was going to write the poem that celebrated my dad on the occasion of his of him turning 50 or was i going to write the poem that that wanted most to be written about my relationship with him like where was the real poem and the poem was in was in the darkness it was not in uh the lightness of the occasion and so i i decided to go for it and uh this is the poem that, that i wrote casting back for my father Along that silent brook, we fish for trout. Thin leopards darting stiff and quick upstream past human shadows, whispering too loud. Without a word, we part to separate pools. Careful not to cast my shape into the stream, I tie an eagle claw, number 12, onto my lead. An improvised, all-purpose knot. And pinching a cricket from my can pierces back, careful not to nail the wings. You see, he's still alive, can fly without my gentle cast. 
Eventually, with a child's hands, I tangle up my line. The spinning reel, a tomfool's knot of unknown twisting loops, easily fixed with just the proper pull, offering you this winding puzzle, content to let you tamper, having lured you to the task. Picking up your rod, I clumsily cast its great weight hard into a tree. You look and shake your head, can't believe the sun you see. Those times I wish that I could die, returning as a fish you'd catch and hold up proud for photographs. I hoped to set the hook just right, but couldn't sense the trout's light tug. Your casts were clean, precise, bait hanging in air, dropping into a distant pool. Every move implied return, reeling in the line to cast and cast again. I tried to mimic you, to catch the whiz click of your clapping bail. That tapping, bone on bone, calls with a soft, hollow knock, living like a memory, forever there yet lost beyond my hook, teasing me like trout. It is a great honor and a tremendous pleasure to hear you read your poetry. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. The story, the, the relationship, and the poem. One of the, um, one of the cool things about, um, about being asked to read that poem, Daniel, is that I haven't read that poem out loud Oh God, it's probably been 30 years and hearing those rhythms again, that was just like putting on an old glove. How'd it feel? That was incredible. Just felt like I knew every, I knew every move in that, in that thing. I I knew like every stress point. I knew where all the, knew where all the kind of rhythmic stresses were. It just felt totally natural. That was really interesting. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it sounded really natural. You know, I suppose you write about what you know, right? You chose in the early stage of your career there to write about and for your father. You know, I'm deeply interested in choices. And I wonder, how do you choose subject matter? Well, you write about what you know. It's more like... uh you go places that are calling you and often there are places that you've been often there are places that you've spent important time in, but you don't know exactly what you're going to find there. You know, so it's like you, you write about what you know to discover what you don't know about what you know. And I think that's part of what I was describing in um, that kind of situation of starting to write that poem for my dad. And, and that's, the, that's where the excitement is. Because if you just were writing what you knew, you would end up with the poem that you imagined you would write. And there'd be no real adventure in that. And that, that's, that's part of the motive of writing is, is going on a kind of adventure. So I, I don't know if you choose your projects or your subjects. They really do choose you. That's kind of a cliche, but, but it's true. 
I think the question is always, what are you dealing with right now? What are the questions that are defining your life? Where are the tensions, the difficulties? What's the problem? Yeah. What's the problem, Daniel? Uh, that's where the next poem is, is where the problem is, uh, or what the question is. Uh, often you think like the poem is kind of out there somewhere and you got to go find it. And usually the poem is kind of right there, right in front of you. It's like so close. You're looking totally past it for something that's out there on the horizon. But that's not where the next poem is. The next poem is just like, you know, you can feel its breath on your eyeballs. Man, you're breathing on my eyeballs right now. I feel like I should drop this call, pick up my pen and a moleskin and get to work. <laughs> but I won't. Okay, so you made some choices. You're pursuing the problem. And it's time to get to work. And I can't help but wonder how you create an appropriate space to do your work. I live with a novelist and our offices share a wall. When I walk past Sarah's office and peek in her door and see her at work, she'll often, she'll be like on the floor and there'll be hundreds of pages in different little piles surrounding her, kneeling, uh, her tables are filled with books and uh she's hard at work it looks like a construction site you know <laughs> i mean she should be wearing a hard hat in that space really uh, yeah. and and to go back to fishing i i just don't work like that you know so for me like getting to work on a poem it's like it's like you're fine you find a good watering hole and you throw in a line and you just kind of settle down and you point that rod tip up and you just watch it and wait to feel the vibration and, and hope that, that you're focused enough to set the hook and, and start pulling that, that thing in. Uh, but my office, yeah, there, there are like, there are tons of books around. But all these books, they're just like different kinds of pathways through different kinds of wooded areas, different, different kinds of forest walks for me. It's um, just a, such a different process for working. There's just a lot of daydreaming, a lot of negative space. And I can get started working on something anywhere. I, I've written first drafts uh, of poems that have turned into real poems for me on airplanes, on trains. Uh, walking the dog, riding my bicycle. I do a lot of revising in my head when I'm physically kind of in motion. I don't sit for very long. I'm very restless. I get up, I walk around. It takes me hours to actually get to work in a way. And, and so I'm always thinking about what I'm doing in relation to Sarah, because she's very industrious and she gets a lot of work done in the day. And, and the way her day is organized, she wakes up at like five o'clock in the morning, gets that coffee and gets to work. And I wake up and, you know, 
I got to remind myself to get out of my pajamas before the kids come home from school. <laughs> you know, so that so they're not worried and embarrassed about like, what dad's doing. You know, so um, yeah. you know, my space is just uh, uh you, you saw it. it's just it's just it's just a couple of desks where I can spread stuff out and open some books and and read and get get lost. Yeah. I love getting lost too. So you gave me a helpful window into the appropriate space question, but I can't help but wonder what your practice feels like on a good day when it's all humming along. Yeah, those are magical because uh, there's no time. You know, you're just kind of outside of time and you're outside of yourself, like all the small parts of yourself. And you're just in that zone. Uh, and I think people who, who have a practice, whether it's, whether it's playing an instrument or writing, you know, painting, drawing, sculpting, playing basketball, Whatever it is, when you're in the zone, and it's just magic. And when you're not in the zone, the objective is to get back in the zone. What are the conditions that you have to establish to re-enter that space? And when you come out and you look at what, what's happened there, you just think, wow, uh, how did that happen? So in the zone, writing searching really for like the next the next point you have to get to uh the excitement of it it's a full body experience it's better than the best meal you've ever had or the best sex that you've ever had it's just if the palm is happening that is just ultimate existence really Josh, I'm really inspired by that. And I know that deep in the cultural well, there's a notion of the inspired poet. And some of this is hokum, like pure twaddle through and through. You know, but, you know like, who am I to pugnaciously poo-poo inspiration, right? But I do want to know, how would you describe the role of inspiration in your practice? It's everything. I, I often uh, dig into the word inspiration with my students uh, because it's it's such an important word and and also such an important idea, so central to everything that we're doing. And and I connected for them to uh, the Latin inspirare, which means to breathe in. That's what inspiration is. It's breathing in. And so when one is inspired by like uh, another poem, it means you're breathing it in, you're breathing in that poem. And, and, and the poem, so much of poetry really is uh, a kind of breath material. That metaphor, it's like active on a lot of different levels. Nothing happens without inspiration. I mean, what would it mean to, to have written a poem that wasn't inspired? 
there are a lot of, of poems that that don't inspire, but surely they in, in that moment were inspiring to the poet. But uh, the trick is to not only kind of set the conditions in which one can make the most of one's inspiration, but to actually combine words in such a way that they convey the feeling that one is having as the poet, you could say, to the other, to the reader, to not just communicate, but to actually create in another person the feeling that you're having, to share the inspiration, to play it forward, to convey it, to float it over to them. So that requires technique. It's not unlike playing a musical instrument. You know, you got to really practice your scales, practice your fingering. You really got to learn a lot in order to get to that point where you can lose yourself in feelings and sensations and create something that then creates those feelings in another person. You know, I love the story that Miles Davis tells in his autobiography of hanging out with Jimi Hendrix. You know, there's like Miles Davis. He's been to Juilliard. He knows his he knows his theory. You know, and Hendrix is is totally self-taught. And they're hanging out and Miles Davis is showing Hendrix how to do something with like chord changes. And Hendrix is like, what? What are you doing? And Miles realizes like, wow, this guy doesn't know anything about what I'm talking about right now. So they sit down for an afternoon and he teaches him. And it's not that it like makes Hendrix a better player or anything, but it just is such a great anecdote that lays bare two different kinds of musical minds, but also the conditions that created them. Miles Davis comes from like a upper middle class family. His dad was a dentist, went to Northwestern, and Miles Davis learns the horn, goes to Juilliard, and leaves school in order to like really cut his teeth in the clubs. And he's got that beautiful kind of fusion of a formal education in music with uh, the education that he picked up playing and sitting in uh, after after gigs and, and such. Uh, and Jimi Hendrix was just a total natural, but they had a lot to share. And, and one of the things they had to share was like different approaches to techniques, different kinds of, of informed techniques. Uh, that's a, a a rich story for me, a really rich anecdote. Think about it a lot. I actually think about that anecdote with some frequency too, but I don't think about that anecdote nearly as much as I think about another anecdote from Miles Davis's autobiography, and that has to do with him and Charlie Parker in the back of a taxi cab <laughs> eating a bucket of chicken wings and doing something else. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an image that sticks with you. Yeah. Our listeners might not know that that book also, despite or perhaps because of Miles Davis's formal education, must hold the world record for the number of uses of the word motherfucker in an autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) He's totally fluent in motherfuckeries. He is. He is. Um, Yo, so you and I share this love for music. We share this love for jazz. We share this love for Miles Davis. And I know that music inspires you. And here we are talking about inspiration. Now, you and I, as I recall, saw VJ Iyer together at a church yes. in Berlin. Yeah. 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 So two two Jews walk into a church, you know, <laughs> go for your punchline. <laughs> I'm chasing the VJ Iyer sound as a puttering pianist. And I wonder what jazz artists you're chasing in your sound as a professional poet. A poem that I've written about a jazz musician is about Art Pepper. And uh, that's another another autobiography that had a huge impact on me. And uh, I love I love Art Pepper's playing. I love his music. Uh, it is so richly grounded in the blues and capable of, of such virtuosic heights. It's got such an amazing, sweet, poignant tone. There's such a, a mixture of joy and pain in it. And uh, he's been important to me in a way, like he's kind of a counterpoint to Miles Davis. Uh, I remember this moment when Miles Davis says, you know, people ask me, how come I don't play ballads anymore? And his response is, I don't play ballads anymore because I love to play ballads. The pathological refusal to walk a comfortable path. (laughs) Uh, And he's trying to get beyond that, you know. And in a way, Art Pepper never turned his back on, on what he loved to play. But there's a moment when, for different kinds of, messed up things he does he was basically a thief in order to in order to to fund his career as a junkie he was like a committed junkie right uh he goes to san quentin and it's in san quentin that he first hears coltrane he's also hearing like not just recordings of coltrane but he's hearing guys play in a way that's imitative of Coltrane and he and he doesn't really know this music and he's he's blown away by it and it has has something to do with the way that Coltrane also is kind of trying to get to the next place you know Coltrane like you hear him play and it's stratospheric it's like he's trying to leave the planet (laughs) you know he's like trying to to break through the stratosphere yeah man you probably know this story but Partly as a meditation and partly as an effort to get clean, Coltrane locked himself in a hotel room just playing a B-flat until it felt just so. And that meditation is what gave birth to a love supreme. There you go. Which was his gift to God or to the spirits or to us all. Exactly. It's like getting, getting to that point. And it requires breaking something in one's own practice in order to do that. 
And Art Pepper had never really done it for all of his virtuosity, for all of his invention. But hearing Coltrane in prison, he started to absorb that sound. And when he got out of prison and he started playing gigs again, it's not that he tried to sound like Coltrane, but like Coltrane gave him like a register that he hadn't acquired before. There's something kind of now broken in Pepper at that point. And it is powerful. It was the integration of the kind of sweetness of like a California jazz with something that was heavier, harder, sharper, and more challenging, and always more difficult. That those later gigs with with Art Pepper, those recordings to me are just overwhelming. I listen to them over and over again. I read your poem, Art Pepper, in thinking about you in the lead up to our discussion today. I will confess to you that I actually did more <laughs> research, so to speak, uh, in preparation for our conversation than maybe every other stud's conversation uh, combined. But that's merely because I was enjoying it so much. <laughs> I hope you don't mind my asking and you can say no thank you and we'll be okay. Would you be down to read Art Pepper? Sure, I got to reach up and get that book. I'll wait for you. Okay, I also haven't read this one aloud in, in a long time. Haven't even looked at it in a long time, Daniel. And um, well, let's see how it goes. It's all good. You know, I actually, there's a line in it. Or there are two lines in it that reminded me of that John Coltrane story playing the B flat. Mm. The boy had grown, had learned to let it swell into the note. Mm -hmm. I don't want to read your poetry to you. It would be <laughs> unbecoming. Um, whenever you're ready. Art Pepper. Scared boy. He even fled a cloud, reminding him of what might happen when his father returned from sea, wasted, to find him perhaps again, locked out in the cold, waiting for other drinkers to come home. His mother, her lover, the catalysis of routine violence passing close like a storm cloud insisting rain until the rain did fall and the father left, returning though once with a clarinet. And when the cloud came back in the sound of a memory, the boy had grown, had learned to let it swell into the note he now holds in me as a laser reads his tone, master for fidelity. Sweet, prismatic splinter and swing, a double-timing scrape aiming for my ear alone in a rented chamber. Nowhere. And I'm with him fully in tune as if he stood hot before me, his life seeming no more dear to him than the sacks he hawked for any kind of syrup he hoped might creep into his heart, like fucked up love that felt like love 
in the belly meadow warmth of his measured joy. Hungry art, art of wind, of lips upon the reed, art of blue, foolish art. Would you be so nice to come home to? Bragging his genius for time turned rancid in San Quentin, swaggering with a ripped off thuggery honor and sick with the terror of not seeming criminal. White man junkie thief whose skin glowed narco green. The sound of Keats, amp through pound. I repeat his name. Jacked into the straight blowing of a life, clarifying like butter over flame. What's home? Where's harm? How to fix? How praise? Lover, come back to me. Why are we afraid? When's the last time you read that? God, it's probably been 20 years. <laughs> I have to tell you, it made me deeply emotional. I'm really grateful that you shared that with me. We're jumping in the Wayback Machine a bit, eh, man? Yeah. yeah. It's good. Yeah, yeah. It's good for me. I'm glad it's good for you, too. So he's a clarinetist. Miles is a trumpet player. He inspires you. Coltrane tickles you something fierce. Saxman. What musical instruments do you strive to sound most like in your practice as a poet? Huh. Well, I think you can hear in that Art Pepper poem that like, I'm trying to play like a long sax line. So that's something. But I really got into jazz through Monk. <laughs> Getting out of the hard way. <laughs> I had a friend who had an album of Monk's solo playing. And I never really understood jazz prior to getting obsessed with these records of Monk uh, playing solo. And, and not that I really understood what was happening uh, when I was listening to, to Monk play those tunes um, by himself. But the solo work allowed me to really hear what was happening in that voicing, to really be in the moment with those pauses, those hesitations, and then those kind of plummeting forwards. And the fact that he was, work, he was working kind of with standards so much, and, and his original tune so often took on a lot of the felicities of those standards that he was otherwise playing, I could hear the frame of the tune and I could hear how he was doing it, how he was in there, living in there and stretching it out and contracting it, really muscling it, really exploring it, like all of its little corners and cracks. And, and it had to do with time. Like kind of hearing how the immaterial material of time was something he could through the piano in a way, like put his hands on. That has a lot to do with poetry, uh, which is essentially a rhythmic art. That's why when you brought up Monk, I was reasonably certain that you were going to reference early Monk, like the stuff he did with Art Blakey. Mm. I mean, I can't tell you what Monk learned about time from Blakey, 
but they must have learned a lot from each other. Like there's certainly that dialogue. And that, that comes out in like brilliant corners, right? Which yeah. I'm sure you listened to a thousand times. Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, I had to come to the ensemble work, the band work later. Like I didn't know how to listen to it. I couldn't actually pay attention to it. It was like Monk actually really taught me how to hear jazz. Mm. It was Keith Jarrett for me. Also the solo work. Yeah. I mean, so kind of thoroughly enriched by the emotion. I love the Colon concerts, of course. Yeah. And then I got into that earlier stuff that he was doing with like Dewey Redmond. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I love that period with him. Yeah. Yeah. And then you put him next to Jack DeJeanette and just call it a night. I love all that. Hey, man, I got to confess to you that I just love hearing you talk. You're a poet. I'm sure I'm not the only one. <laughs> and so I've found myself just not wanting to stop you at all. I'm just listening and smiling and singing along a bit. I know that what you have to say will resonate with so many of our listeners. Would it be okay with you if we turned our discussion here into a two-part episode and we'll come back with another hour or an hour and a half next week? Oh yeah, sure. I'm flattered. I'd be honored. All right, my friends, that is part one of my two-part discussion with the poet Josh Weiner. That dude blows my mind. Do yourself a favor. Don't miss part two. You'll be crazy to miss it. Trust me. Brother takes us places. And I'll be appending part two of my discussion with Josh with the song I composed about an Osip Mandelstam poem that he did a version of. And I'm joined on that song by two of the most talented musicians alive. And no, I'm not being hyperbolic. Be there, not in two weeks, next week. But for now... I got a real treat for y'all. Berlin's finest, via New York, via Santa Cruz, via Boulder, via Taipei, in celebration of the Holy Spirit at the intersection of poetry and music. I am pleased as punch and proud as a new papa to share with you all a version of Thelonious Monk's Crepuscule with Nelly arranged and performed as a reflection of my conversation with Josh Weiner by my man, Eric Pan. Eric is teeming with talent and soul and love. He's a pianist and improviser, a storyteller and an explorer. Yo, I linked to Eric's website and work in the show notes. Dude's half the reason I check Instagram. Follow him on Instagram. You'll see. Hey, here's your advice for the day. Read poetry and discover Eric Pan. My boy's not exactly committed to this dimension that most of us live in. But he was kind enough to record this meditation on Crepuscule with Nelly for Josh, for me, 
and for you all. So please, do yourself a favor and take the next three minutes and travel with Eric. <laughs>